Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and being endlessly amused by sweary cross-stitch patterns. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I'm currently not using a fidget spinner as my primary tool to lower my stress levels. Today on the show, we're talking with Emily Nakashima, Director of Engineering at Honeycomb. Hi, Emily. Hello. Welcome, <laughs> Welcome to the show. Oh, this is the first time uh, for us having one of my current colleagues on the show, so I'm super excited about that. Um, and yeah, let's uh, let's dive right in. It's a little early, so you know we may be a little slow to get off off the ground here. But um, tell us about your path to leadership. How did you start out, and how did you come to be where you are now, director? You know, I have a bit of a weird path, but I feel like that's that's everyone I know in tech. Certainly, <laughs> most of the people I know at Honeycomb. Gosh, um, I. You know, I feel like I just sort of swing from one monkey bar to the next, and each one is uh, a little bit unexpected, given the one before it. So I actually have a degree in architectural design. Uh, from there, I got into computer things in the early 2000s. Um, the backstory there is pretty funny, but uh, long, so I'll spare you. Oh, oh. He says I should. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we want to know the backstory because I just assumed you went straight from professional beekeeping into honeycomb. That is how most of the company got here. So that's a good, that's a good fair mm-hmm. assumption. But right. uh, no, tell us, give us all the details. Oh, gosh. In college, I uh, had a crush on someone who was responsible for, uh, she was responsible for maintaining the rugby team website. And I thought, well, gee, a really great way to get to know someone better would be to offer to maintain the website with this person. Uh, it turns out that I didn't understand very much about either websites or how people worked at the time, but it, you know, it seemed like a great idea. <laughs> Wait, um, were, you, were you already on the rugby team? I was, yes. Oh, so, okay. I, th- I thought you were saying... It was, I thought the obvious conclusion was going to be to join the rugby team to get to know this person. Oh, she did that part already, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're already there. Okay, carry on. That that makes more sense. Elaborate series of checkboxes. So yes, join the rugby team, offer to maintain the website. Didn't know anything about HTML or computers or anything at all, but I figured, you know what, I'm going to figure it out. Um, That plan did not work at all, as as one might expect, but I did end up maintaining the rugby website for years. Uh, And then I- (laughs) Oh, so at least you got that out of it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And then found someone on the team who was uh, smarter than me to teach me how to actually do HTML. So um, that was how I got into computer things. Uh, and then it turned out that, uh, um, you know, I decided I didn't want to be an architect, kind of looked at what that lifestyle was like, uh, started working in a warehouse. I had decided to move to Seattle to work in this warehouse. So I was surrounded by people who worked at Microsoft. And I thought, well, gosh, these people make a lot more money than I do. Perhaps I should do computer things again. Um, this was like you know early 2000, so uh, I got a job doing web design back when having any sort of design background at all could get you into design. Yeah. Um, from yeah, that was a golden era. It's really yeah. interesting to see the people who were kind of these like um, uh, these we were the like amoebas in like the pool of life in the early <laughs> web era, and then you know people have all specialized now. So many people I know who were like webmaster, web designer are like uh, you know content strategy now or marketing or mm-hmm. you know we've all sort of evolved into things that are you know further down the kingdom of i was life. wondering where you were going with the amoebas thing but now, now i see now i see angle bracket based life forms it's all it's of true. all yeah yeah it's true um so yeah so you're you're doing design, yeah in seattle and then where'd you go from there um, so I moved to San Francisco because I thought, you know what you should do? You should move in with your ex from college. That's a good thing to do. So she moved to the Bay Area. And so I was like, great, I'll do that. And then it turned out that it was a great place to get a tech job. So um, I got uh, a job uh, working in 
the marketing department of a large financial services company doing kind of HTML, CSS, a little bit of design. Um, and I've just sort of uh, jumped in a more and more technical direction from there. So I ended up doing uh, front-end engineering, full-stack engineering, um, ended up focusing on performance and monitoring because it turns out that, you know, when you start working on the client side of things, um, that's actually an area that not that many people are interested in, but that there's a lot of depth to. Um, that got me hanging out with ops folks who I realized, you know, we're all uh, deeply paranoid at heart. We all love to optimize things. Um, we all have this healthy skepticism of software engineers. Um, and then... Uh, Gosh, how did I get into management? That's a, a yeah. good question. When did you first have a team that you were leading? Did you lead in the in the rugby team? Did you do any of that kind of stuff? Um, sure. You know, I've done all kinds of uh, leadership and teaching kinds of things and, and never really saw that as going in a career kind of direction. I think what it was was um, there were a couple jobs where I ended up uh, – you know, Pi, this is going to sound familiar to you, but I ended up uh, wrangling a chat room of people. <laughs> yeah, it does sound familiar. A, a, it does. It does. You know, I worked at a lot of companies that had a really strong asynchronous culture, and I think I ended up sort of organizing different interest groups um, mm -hmm. at different companies that were chat room based, and I realized that uh, solving people problems was kind of just as interesting as solving technical problems. Yeah. Cool. So where was just your first management gig? Uh, first official management gig was uh, 2015 at a small company called Bugsnag. I love to work on developer tools, so that was my second developer tools company. Um, and the the founders there were were super great, and they uh, you know kind of saw a good space for uh, leaders on small teams who were kind of half technical lead, half engineering manager. So it was kind of half something that made sense to me that I knew really well, and then half something totally new that uh, was kind of terrifying but but fun to learn. Totally. And, and was there some, did they help you? Did you take any courses? Like I have been through various management courses over the years, but I don't know that those are what necessarily taught me how to be a leader. Is that something you've done as well? Or um, I've worked with a coach a little bit here and there, and I did find that really, really useful for debugging particular situations. Um, I have never done any sort of formal management training beyond, you know, I love to read. I think, you know, like a lot of programmers, you know, we love to teach ourselves things by like reading books or reading blog posts, that kind of thing. So a lot of that, but I think that was the biggest slice of um, management specific education for me. Okay. So then... As a result of that, are there horrible, terrible lessons that you've had to learn the hard way? Right. What's the most embarrassing thing? <laughs> I'm going to channel Charity or perhaps Christine and be like, what's the most embarrassing lesson you've had to learn to get here? You don't have to answer that. Oh, gosh, well, that's a great question. Or you're the guest and you do have to answer well, that. Okay. <laughs> you're the bad cop today, Kendall. <laughs> Um, gosh, I think that the hardest thing for me to learn, I don't know about the most embarrassing, but definitely the hardest thing for me to learn was that um, you shouldn't try to fix every problem. Um, I, you know, I, I really kind of can fall into that um, uh, ruinous empathy quadrant when you kind of think of the, the radical candor way of thinking about things. Uh, and, you know, I really uh, will kind of take other people's problems on as my own. And as someone who I think naturally really likes to be helpful, mm -hmm. I especially early in my uh, management experience, I really wanted to jump in and help everyone fix every problem. And uh, I definitely had to learn the hard way a couple times that um, people can really get a lot of value out of uh, learning how to fix things themselves. And also not every problem needs to be fixed. You know, sometimes the problem is just that uh, the person's perspective on the situation makes them 
believe that this is the most important thing to solve and they actually just need someone to help them walk through how to put that into perspective rather than someone to um, jump in and try to um, help them solve whatever they think is a problem. Does that make sense? Yo, no, that absolutely resonates with me. Uh, Go ahead, Kendall. Well, so so there's kind of two opposites of not fix all the problems. Like one is just to delegate them and let other people fix the problems. The other is to intentionally let some of those things burn for a while. And and which which are you kind of, which side have you landed on in that? Or maybe both? Uh, It's definitely both. I think that, uh, you know, right now I work at a a small startup. We're we're early stage, you know, we're we're just about 30 people. And so there's a lot of things that it's the right decision to let that fire burn. Um, (laughs) So hard though. Like, it's on fire. Ah, yeah. But there is more fire over here that we have to fix. Yeah, I think that, you know, just right now having a, a smaller team, there's there's fewer people to, to need to kind of delegate things out to and many more fires that we should just be very disciplined about letting burn. So that's the direction I've leaned in for the moment. And it depends so, on the kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, so then almost, I mean, there's a lot of talk about how company success is largely about what you say no to, right? You, you have to be hyper-focused in order to succeed as an organization. Uh, I mean, is, is there a parallel here to leadership that you have to be hyper-focused on what you're solving as a leader in order to be successful as a leader? Or am I drawing a conclusion that doesn't exist? Oh, gosh, no, that, that really, really resonates with me. Even, you know, I think I'm the kind of person who wants to even work on, I, I want to work on everything at once. I want to make every piece of the product beautiful. I want to fix every problem in, in my own leadership style that might be, you know, getting in the way. You know, I want to fix every problem that we have as a company. Um, so I definitely see all those things as tied together for sure. So then how do you prioritize? Oh, gosh. Um you know, as a as a company, I, I'm really blessed to be surrounded by super smart people who are very, very focused, who um, are kind of, I think, fighting the same battles that I am. You know, I think a lot of engineers, but also just a lot of the people we've hired here are we're perfectionists. We love the craft. We love to make things really beautiful. And so it is really wonderful to have a team of people with me who uh, see all the same problems that I see and are, are exercising the exact same amount of discipline that uh, picking only the ones that are kind of solving the most important business problems. Um, yeah, it helps to have that moral support to know that people understand you're suffering for putting this down, but you have to put it down. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And honestly, so Charity Majors, the CEO of Honeycomb, uh, is someone that um, really, really helps me stay stay on track in, in that way. Um, she gave this wonderful talk at Velocity way back in maybe um, 2014, 2015, that was about technical decision making. Um, and she makes this point over and over again that uh, the best engineers are the ones who are thinking about how to solve business problems and constantly trying to make that connection between their work and, and the things that they're doing that move the company forward. And I think um, it sounds so obvious when you say it out loud, but when I look at how engineers talk about and evaluate each other's work, often that's the piece that's left out of the picture. So seeing that from the top really, really helps. Well, I think too, like it's, it's hard sometimes for, well, and even if it's not hard, I think it's unusual for managed to communicate business concerns well. And so it's, it's easy for the engineers to be disconnected from any business concern and just be like, well, I'm working on this thing because that seems like the obvious thing to me, even if it's not in any way aligned with business goals. But yeah, yeah. I think that's super common though. I, I, I had known dozens, possibly hundreds of engineers who join startups just because, I mean, they, they don't really consider whether the startup is has a business model that makes any sense or, 
you know, they're just like, I'm going to write code. That's all. And, and they are like, you know, six months later out of a job again and looking again. And it's like, if you enjoy that churn, then you don't need to pay attention to these business concerns. But if you want a job that's going to stick around, if you want to work with people who are also thinking about these things, about the future, you want some stability, you want to build something that'll last, maybe think a bit more about the business concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Well, what's a, What's a leadership issue you're dealing with right now, Emily? What's something that's top of mind for you oh, that gosh. you share without throwing everyone under the bus? Uh. <laughs> um, we just came out of uh, doing a round of hiring. And uh, for me, that's definitely the thing that I'm the worst at multiplexing with my other uh, kind of engineering management tasks. So I find that for me, hiring becomes something that kind of consumes all available brain bandwidth. Um, I think, mm -hmm. you know, we really, uh, as a team, kind of looked at our past experiences with hiring and looked at the kind of the data coming out of companies like Google that have really thought a lot about the hiring process and um, started at this point of acceptance around the fact that most engi uh, engineering interview processes don't actually tell you that much about how successful candidates will be when they actually join you. And so we have tried to make a hiring process that is empathetic and, and uh, you know, kind of humanizing and um, gives us as much signal as we can get without putting people through undue pain and trauma. So um, <laughs> it's been useful to revisit that. We kind of had a, a gap of about six months between doing a, a big round of hiring and, and kind of got to come back to that and think about what's working and what wasn't, but um, just got someone to sign a, a couple weeks ago. And so um, that is the thing that's most fresh in my mind, but I kind of get to look back at it now and go, what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm I'm especially fond of our interview process. I mean, I didn't officially really interview. I hung out in the office for a while and <laughs> decided that I would come on board. <laughs> it was kind of uh, a little less formal than it is now. But uh, I do enjoy what we talk about in terms of uh, we are we're interested in setting it up so that you can look you can be your best rather than worrying about what it is that we need to see. We're worried about what it is that you want to show us as a candidate. Um, and I, I really like that a lot. I mean, a lot of people complain about things like, yeah, doing this whiteboard coding test is just not really showing me off at my best at all. And um, so we rarely see that kind of thing. Okay, have you had uh, candidates comment on this process? How uh, have you adjusted it based on comments, on feedback from candidates? What's your favorite thing about it? Uh, for the most part, the, the feedback has been very positive. And to me, the best indicator is honestly always that even people that we say no to, we say, you know, you know, you seem great. We really enjoyed talking to you, but we don't feel like, you know, it's the right fit right now. Um, it's so common for us to hear back from those people. Um, I totally understand. I really enjoyed talking to you, you know, and definitely keep me in the mind, keep me in mind in the future in case uh, a role opens up that seems like a better fit. So um, that to me seems like a, a really positive signal. Totally. Uh, it's yeah. a small, I feel like it's a, it's a small world, particularly in the ops space and, and Honeycomb hires more, uh, I, I would assume software engineers that understand ops than, you know, reactive ops is much more like SREs than software engineers. But, uh, but it's still this small world of people who are really concerned with ops tooling and ops processes. And I feel like burning a bridge affects a, a, a wide swath. So doing that well is a big deal, which, uh, I too am opposed to whiteboards, Pi. So that's why I suggest everyone use a blackboard. I Down really with whiteboards, up with uh, blackboards. Talk, talk is the way in the future. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, I, I always, I always say this, and I always think I know the answer. Um, and I actually know you. Uh, but 
Are you an introvert or an extrovert? And how does that affect your work, Emily? Oh, gosh, I am a huge, huge introvert. Like, I think like a lot of software engineers, people who come up through the kind of coding path into management, um, I am absolutely an introvert. I know that you know, throughout the day as I'm doing management things, I'm kind of uh, spending down my energy tokens or my spoons or, you know, whatever metaphor you like to use for that kind of thing. Um, but I do find that uh, just like solving engineering problems it was something that brought me uh, kind of energy. I, I do find that making kind of people connections and, and helping people uh, solve problems or move closer to their goals is something that builds my energy back up a little bit. And uh, I feel really lucky in that way because I know that not every manager feels that that same thing. So um, the, mm -hmm. the human interaction side of it is a, a net energy drain, but I still feel that kind of rush of creating things as a manager, which I find really helpful. So talk a little bit about that. I was talking with somebody recently who's relatively new in their uh, management career and they were saying, you know, that what the hardest transition for them is um, beginning to value their wins with people, right? Like when, when you knock off a certain number of tickets or you write a certain number of lines of code or you build a certain number of functions, whatever it is, there's, there's very measurable things. And when leading people, uh, you know, some of the things that I feel good about are like when I've cast vision well or felt like I, I shared a new idea that really challenged someone to think about something different or, you know, but what are the things that make you feel like, wow, I really accomplished something today as a, as a leader when, when you're having those conversations with people, because you can have a million one-on-ones that are completely worthless. And sometimes, I mean, I, I do that. I, I had a one-on-one -on -one right before this where I was like so distracted the whole time. I was like, I'm so sorry. Like there's just so much going on and being worthless in this. But so what are the things that make you feel like you're really accomplishing something that you're proud of as a manager? Um, definitely seeing folks on my team learn a new thing or, or feel like they have managed to move a project forward or um, we're a very high autonomy engineering culture and part of that ends up being that engineers do a fair amount of work that might fall into a product management or a project management bucket at uh, other companies um, and we definitely have varying degrees of, of comfort with that on the team so sometimes it's just sort of coaching people a little bit in how to get a project unstuck or how to um, work most effectively with other people. And uh, when I start to see, you know, I'm someone who loves to see the machine kind of running smoothly. So when I see something go from stuck to unstuck, uh, that's something that feels hugely gratifying to me. Um, I also, you know, funny enough, um, seeing people choose not to act, it's like seeing people, like we talked about, like have that judgment for when to let the fire keep burning. When I know that they're, they're, every instinct is telling them, you know, you want to fix this thing, make it beautiful or um, spend extra time on this. And I see that they have sort of internalized, this is the business goal that we're moving toward and they can uh, kind of have the discipline to not do that. That, that also feels hugely gratifying to me because I know it means that we're kind of united around the same vision rather than um, doing the things that our, our instincts as engineers tell us to do. Mm -hmm. Did you find it, I found it hard when I was a, a younger leader, and I think you and I have a lot of the same traits, but um, that that one of the things that was difficult in terms of trying to solve everyone's problems is also trying to be everybody's friend, like trying to be, trying to make everybody happy uh, on your team and 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 taking the um, the automatic posture that you know, your team is, is in the right and everyone above is like, they suck and you need to protect your team. I feel like there's a lot of that kind of culture in young management. And um, I wondered if you went through that and how you got through it, if you did. 
Yeah, that, that sounds a little bit like experiences that I had. I think the thing that was hardest to me was um, uh, being able to have a conversation with someone where um, each person I talk to gets something that is true, but uh, we're talking in a way that um, is the kind of most positive possible take on a particular situation. I think it's very easy to represent something that feels positive to each person in the moment and then have trouble reconciling all those things into a, a real plan that you can move forward. So, um, you know, I think I, I realized that this was a real shift from going from an individual contributor to being a manager. So, you know, as an individual contributor, I think you often don't have to have that experience of, of disappointing people or forcing people to compromise. And so, you know, you could have these conversations with everyone where you felt like there was a really positive outcome and you had a really good connection. Uh, and it, it was definitely an adjustment to realize that, um, you know, the outcome that makes the most sense for the company is always going to disappoint one or two people here or there. So uh, learning how to kind of front load that, because I, I think people love to hear people do much better when they hear the, the bad news up front and then the outcome isn't quite as bad as they thought versus, you know, having this perception that everything is going their way and then finding out later that, um, <laughs> wow, wow. not quite what they picture. <laughs> but yes, that was definitely, I think one of the hardest things of the first kind of 18 yeah. months. Of being a kind of like marketing in a way, like you have, it's not like you're spinning the message, but you're, you definitely have to put it in the right order, couch it in the right terms, give context, make sure they take away what it is they need to take away. And yeah, being, being okay with the fact that people are just going to be unhappy sometimes is, is hard, but it's, you know, it's necessary, I think. Um, and, and this is, you know, related to relationships with authority. Like what, what is your relationship with authority? Do you think, do you, how do you feel about having authority over other people? And how do you feel about other people having authority over you? <laughs> um, I, you know, funny enough, Honeycomb, I think, is a, a company of people with authority issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems definitely. to be a theme that <laughs> is running through this whole thing. But um, I was someone who grew up with a very um, accepting relationship toward authority, which was actually really hard for me when I uh, became a manager. Uh, you know, I think um, I always did really well in school. I was always on team sports. And I think I really just sort of had one of those uh, childhoods that really encouraged you to um, say yes to every request and follow every rule. Uh, and I got quite far in my life doing that. And then uh, as a manager, I realized that you really have to challenge people above you when you don't feel like they're setting the right rules or asking you to do the right things. Uh, um, and uh, there was a lot of uh, learning on a very steep learning curve there after kind of realizing that my team didn't think we were doing the right things either. And people were kind of um, disappointed in the outcome after we had worked really hard. So totally you're Captain America, basically you're going through, <laughs> you're going through Captain America's life cycle. Sorry. I've been watching all the MCU movies, <laughs> like, you know, starting out being like, yeah, I am all for, you know, I understand my role here as a leader and as a member of a team and then going through this process of, Oh, it's more complicated than that. And I have to, I have to, you know, I have to argue with those in authority over me. That's like civil war. And then <laughs> anyway, Sorry. Uh, but yes, having, having that, having that complexity come up when you, when you move into a management role, stop it, Kendall. Stop it. In a few minutes, I want you to relate whatever she says <laughs> to, you know, a DC comic and then we'll go for question that I'm a huge dork. Uh, it's been answered. Uh, so do you feel, so obviously you, you feel like you have a different uh, relationship with authority now than you did when you were a kid, when you were in college and playing team sports and stuff like that's, that's changed. 
for you um is that do you wish it hadn't like do you feel like you're is this just a part of maturity uh what uh what are your feelings about that no no i love it um I, for me part of it honestly was learning to see authority figures as real people that's going to sound really messed up but i think you know when you have uh, a relationship with someone where you just sort of say yes and follow the rules that they set you you really don't get a chance to see the kind of 3d outline of them as an as an actual person um and i think uh, you know that was just uh, partly just the process of maturing honeycomb really helped there though because i think this is definitely um the the place where i've had the most uh, demographically in common with the founders of the company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one founder is an openly queer woman, the other one is an Asian American woman, and it turns out that um, just there are small aspects of, of having things in common in your background that actually just make it a little easier to look at someone and recognize a particular trait in them and see where it comes from. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, well, hopefully that means you also see yourself as, you know, the founder of a company someday, because I totally <laughs> want to see you there. <laughs> Oh, that's a terrifying thought. Gosh. Um, no, see, it's great. this is one of those things where if you see it up close and personal, you realize that it's much, much harder than you thought and not much easier. Uh -huh. than you Absolutely. But yes. does it make it easier to push back then seeing that those folks are not as different from you as, as you thought to, to, to challenge their leadership? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think honestly, the thing that hadn't occurred to me before was how much people at the top are can end up being kind of isolated, even though they don't want to be, you know, when people are um, just looking at you as an authority figure, you often don't get the, the feedback that you need. And you don't even have people to kind of bounce ideas off of or, um, you know, partner with to kind of arrive at the best conclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I kind of realized how lonely that could be and kind of how unhelpful it was to, to you know, building a great product together, honestly. Um, then everything sort of clicked into the place, into place for me. And I thought, oh, of course, um, of course people want you to question their uh, authority and, and ask questions and... Um, yeah, yeah, it's well, more collaborative. Unless, unless they're really insecure, which happens too. But uh, but yeah, somebody who's, who's a competent leader and usually a little bit more mature leader, which... Um, which is one of our next questions. And, you know, that's <laughs> as you've grown in leadership and you know, sounds like matured in leadership to be able to get to a point where you can give this kind of feedback and humanize the people at the top, which I think is a significant part of it. But uh, in your mind, what separates a junior leader from a senior one in terms of skills, abilities, maybe even perspectives? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I think one thing, you know, I don't necessarily know that I can give a global answer to that that feels particularly truthful. I feel like I'm still learning so much about leadership. And, um, you know, just like I think of a really senior engineer as someone with, you know, 10 or 20 years of experience now, I know that I'm just at the beginning of my leadership career. And who knows, I think I'm not even at the point where I could recognize a super, super senior leader. Um, but uh, to me, uh, I think a big lesson that I have seen a few people around me learn who I really respect as leaders recently is um, how to leave yourself a little bit of slack, how to not just uh, accept that rush of being busy all the time to feel like you're making progress and make sure that you kind of have that bandwidth for when it really matters. Because, you know, the higher and higher you get, the more your job is about helping other people course correct when they really need to, rather than focusing on um, just kind of executing the things that you know are going to have to be done day to day. Um, and I think uh, for people who love to be busy and have gotten really far in their career by working hard, that's a really, really hard lesson to learn that you have to make sure that you um, 
leave enough empty space to to jump in when it really matters. Mm, Kendall, are you paying attention? Yeah, <laughs> I saw uh, you nodding. Like because mm. of uh, yeah, I, I may ha- may or may not have shared some some uh, details of my calendar yesterday with her. And uh, <laughs> oh, no. no, I think I mean along those lines. I think one of the things that nobody told me about being in senior leadership is that it is essential for me to make time for mental stability because when I'm stressed out, when I'm not capable of stepping back and thinking creatively, I like that stresses out everyone who reports to me that stresses out their reports. And then now I'm not giving good feedback. I'm not thinking creatively about things like, um, there's times where I'm able to like really mark off even a couple hours in the middle of the week and go for a run in the mountains. And I just spend the whole time thinking about work and I come down from the mountain. I love all the metaphors here. Um, <laughs> but like with all these great ideas that, you know, cause I've just been chewing on everything that's going on all the time where um, if I do the same run off hours, I'm legitimately doing everything I can not to think about work. And it's a different experience. Uh, does that feel like work to you? Do you get that satisfaction of feeling like you've accomplished something? Or do you feel a little bit of guilt around like I took time out of my day to do this? Whenever I'm planning it, I feel tremendously guilty about it. Like, oh, I can't go take two and a half hours out in the middle of the day like that. But then when I'm doing it, I come down feeling like this is some of the most useful work I've done is like, oh, you know, there's this thing I haven't encouraged this person in in a long time. Hey, there's this idea I've had for forever that I haven't gone and communicated to someone because I've just been busy. And uh, it's easy for me to get so busy that that I miss those things. But yeah, do that's... That, you uh, take mental notes while you're running? Do you record? the? I would forget everything when I came back. I'm just wondering, because it's like a long form, you know, you're having I, a planning, you're having a... You're having some sort of self-meeting. I'm just better at that than you. Yeah, apparently you are. (laughs) No, it's (laughs) it's usually one or two things, you know, maybe two or three things that I, I can't remember past the third thing. I, even if I'm going to the grocery store, I can remember two items. You give me the third, I'm in trouble, but. uh, So we know that Kendall's hobbies outside of work include running in the mountains and beard care. Uh, What are your hobbies outside of work, Emily? Uh, hilariously enough for someone who is surrounded by ops engineers all the time, um, I am into disaster preparedness as like a, a fun hobby. Um, I do a number of weird outdoor sports. I like to canoe and kayak and paddleboard and um, anything that kind of gets you out in, in nature, kind of immersed is, is something that really helps me feel like I kind of have that balance in my life. Wait, so disaster prepared. I have, I have a million this questions. Is the best. This is very this large is the box. Best. <laughs> yeah, is this, is this prepping in, in the sense of zombie apocalypse? Is this prepping in the sense of nuclear apocalypse? Is this just like, hey, maybe someday our economy will tank and I need to learn how to hunt and fish to survive? What's the... It, to me, the more scenarios you can cover, the more excited I am about it. Um, <laughs> you know, Hi <laughs> and I are lucky to be uh, in, in Oakland, and Oakland has a wonderful program called CORE, which is um, a kind of community-based preparedness program. So it's not just about how can I, uh, you know, stash supplies away in my basement, but also how can I like partner with people around me to make sure that we're all um, together and cared for if something happens. And um, they always use the example of the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake uh, in the Bay Area um, back in the late '80s, and um, you know they point out that the people who were there were people who were just ordinary citizens who were kind of in the right place at the right time and wanted to help. And um, that idea was really powerful to me. So uh, I like to think a lot about how to make my own community resilient to kind of any kind of change rather than focus on, you know, 
having the most supplies possible. How to many work. guns? Yeah, really. Yeah, but, but then isn't, I thought half the goal of prepping was having the guns so when someone comes to steal your food supply, you can hose them all down because every, you know, yeah. person oh right is that not is that not the case you actually want to live in community in the future <laughs> did you not learn anything from the original night of the living dead it's the humans I, that are the monsters this I is know. part of my my secret agenda is that i want uh you know uh, people talk about prepping and it really has this like libertarian guns and gold bars in the mountain kind of vibe to it and i feel like uh you know it's a real shame that we've taken this away from everyone else who has like diverse <laughs> interests and diverse approaches to this kind of thing Yes, yes. <laughs> well, what's what's funny about this is a, a, a family member of mine who shall rena- remain unnamed and is about the, the, the kindest, sweetest hearted person I've ever known, uh, you know, in his 70s, um, was was talking with, with my family about prepping and, and, hey, I have all these supplies down and here's my guns in case somebody comes and tries to steal them. And I remember my dad saying, Hey man, like you, if somebody knocks on your door, you're not going to shoot them. You're like the kindest person on earth. You're going to open your door and share your food with them. Like, like, are you, who are you fooling in this situation? And, and just watching him kind of go, oh yeah, that's, I haven't ever thought about I guess I could be kind and welcoming. Well, okay. Uh, So Wait, so that involves canoeing and rock climbing and just all the outdoor survival things. What, what else, what else is involved in that? Um, th- those are actually, in my mind, those are distinct hobbies, but I do okay, understand okay. that there I are scenarios were, where they can converge. <laughs> I thought you were including those. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Well, we used to like uh, sit in the old office and plan what we might do, you know, in the upstairs, whether we'd have access to other other uh, businesses for resources, that kind of stuff. Like planning. Planning is fun. Yeah, well, that last office was definitely straight out of a, like a 90s low-res uh, zombie video game, Holy. though. So. Absolutely. <laughs> really called um, for. <laughs> so wait, other oh, than, is, is, yeah, go ahead, Kendall. Oh, I'm sorry. I have one more question about this. Is is bad offices, maybe not bad offices, like uh, interesting offices, what led to the prepping hobby? Like, hey, this is kind of scary. Maybe it's all going to come down. Uh, oh, gosh, no. The bad offices are definitely good fodder for the imagination. That one had this very strange fenced-in courtyard with a, like a big roll-top door and like an astroturf area mm-hmm. and then lots of mysterious uh, metal boxes that we didn't know what they were. Um, so it really was just something that was designed to jog the imagination and uh, maybe appear <laughs> in some sort of adventure game. Uh, but no, this came out of, you know, I used to love like backpacking and camping and all these kinds of things. And so this was kind of the sensible way to merge that with my adult life, as far as I could tell. No, and I also feel that like you know, your goals of having it be something that's useful to the community, making sure that everyone is, I mean, that's a leadership thing. Like that shows a trait in you that, I think is is totally applicable to both your you know your your job job and your interest job and um, this kind of leads into like how how has becoming a leader in your job job affected your personal life would you say it's positive or negative like have you taken anything that you've learned from being a manager of people uh, and leading a team into your personal life? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, management, honestly, uh, is one of the best little labs you can set up for yourself to kind of understand how people work and what makes people feel good and satisfied in their own lives. Uh, and I, I certainly feel like aspects of that have um, positively enriched my personal relationships outside of work. Um, I think that 
you know, we spend so much time in school learning about everything but how people work. And I wish that, you know, there were more things I had done when I was younger that um, kind of taught me the mechanics of um, human growth and happiness. Um, but yeah, nothing really specific is coming to mind, but absolutely, I do feel like the things I learned at my job have made every other part of my life better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the one one thing that really comes to mind for me in that kind of thing is I early on read a book called Crucial Conversations, which I know got handed out here a few months ago or six months ago or something. And that aspect of, you know, like understanding your own motivations when you're having a conversation, understanding um, what it is you're trying to get and why, uh, it really helps in both my work relationships and um, and my personal relationships a lot. Like it cut the drama down in my life like hugely. So I always ask this question because I feel like, you know, some people talk about having one-on-ones with their partners, like, so how can I improve my, you know, <laughs> whatever, let's go through this checklist. And it, that's totally not how it is for me, but it seems to work well for some folks. Like and it, all of these little tools that people learn to, to interact with their teams and their leadership, and then they bring them home and, try to put them into place and sometimes it's good and sometimes not so much. Yeah, the number of people I know who've brought like Jira or like Pivotal Tracker into their personal relationships uh, is, <laughs> I, you know, I think it approaches a half dozen. So uh, I'm glad wow. that that wasn't the answer for me, but I, I would definitely second uh, Crucial Conversations. That was a, a wonderful book that I learned so much from. Oh, and man, for, yeah. for the record, bringing Trello home is somehow socially acceptable. It must be because I have a Trello. Across the line. Yeah, uh, Trello defaults to a card-based layout, which I feel like is much better for you know, a weekend kind of thing. I agree with that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> sitting, sitting down with a significant other and saying, "So, how many points are you going to knock off this weekend?" Is uh, right. You is know, definitely. It's definitely a way to approach relationships. But uh, well, so Emily, before we let you go. If money were no object, what would you do with your life? Would would things dramatically change? Are you, uh, or or you know, would would you disappear into the mountains and survive? Oh gosh! If money were no object, I would find a way to buy more time because I I love what I do. I wouldn't want to give it up. But there's just you know, twenty different hobbies on the back burner that I wish I were devoting more time to. So. I would buy some sort of physics-defying time-generating machine and use it to keep my current job and do other things too. That's that's, that's if that's the question was if money was no object, not if, if the time space were no object. Was, <laughs> was we could manipulate. <laughs> uh, well, I'm really glad that you like your job so much because I'm working with you. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so as, as Kendall said, we're heading towards the end of the podcast. Um, but what I want to know is where can people find you on the internet if they want to ask you prepping tips or, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, the best way to find me on the internet is usually on Twitter. I am much more of a Twitter reader than a Twitter writer, but I am on there all the time. And I will certainly respond if you want to ask me about prepping or management or client-side monitoring or anything else. Uh, so I am uh, at EA Nakashima on Twitter. Cool. And, and how I'll do you spell Nakashima for our... Our listeners. Uh, that is N-A-K-A-S-H-I-M-A. Yeah, I'll put that in the notes so that it will be spelled out. Yeah, cool. probably in the episode name as well, which I guess makes things easy. Yes, Kendall. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, spending your time with us this early morning, Emily. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Bye.